Welcome to the Unlucky Sperm Club podcast, where we prove that you are not a victim of your circumstances, but a product of your choices. I am your host, Nelson Tressler. This episode is brought to you by the revolutionary goal achievement program, I Got Smarter, Goals Elevated. 10 minutes a day, $10 a month, can increase your goal achievement by as much as 95%. If your goals aren't worth 10 minutes a day and $10 a month, you need bigger goals. I Got Smarter Goals Elevated is available at igotsmarter.com and on both Apple and Android at the App Store. As always, on the Unlucky Sperm Club podcast, we are about to get lucky with some words of wisdom from today's guest, Yume Chang. She is the Chief Community Officer at Life is Love School. She is also in charge of a lot of people at Google. She's worked at Microsoft. She graduated high school at 16, got her master's degree from Stanford at 21. How are you doing today? Thanks for being with us. Hey, Nelson. I'm doing great. I'm excited to be on your show. Yeah, thank you so much. So uh, one of the first things I like to do on our show is to have you give us a great piece of advice that our listeners will stop and write down. Uh, do you have anything like that, a quote or some, some great advice that you can give our listeners? Maybe I'll start with a name. So the name Life is Love School came from one of my best friends, I went through a phase in my life where I wasn't sure why I bothered being here. It was an existential crisis after like a relationship breakup. And I asked her, I said, you know, what's the meaning of life? And she said, well, it's different for everybody. But the way I see it is that this life is love school, meaning that regardless of what happens to us, it could be good experiences, bad experiences, but every experience is to teach us how to love ourselves and how to love other people better. Love that. that. The lessons will keep coming. It's just, that's life. You just get better at loving. So it's like, that is a really good way to see life. So when I had the opportunity to start Life is Love School, the the mission of the the, uh, Life is Love School is to heal childhood trauma and relationship trauma survivors, because we all know that when people have unhealed trauma, you're either re-victimized later in life or you pass it on and neither are good outcomes. So kind of the background of myself is that I am somebody who suffered parental abuse growing up in Taiwan. And when I was a child, nobody came to my aid. So I decided that one day when I grow up, and I have the opportunity to do something about it, I will. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I love that, you know, when, when you word that life is love school, like we're here to learn how to love people. Uh, words are so powerful. And, when, and when, when you look at something like that and you go throughout life, just learn, you know, looking to learn how to love I, I love that. I love that. Can you get a little bit more into your your pain to purpose story? Uh, you know, on the Unlucky Sperm Club, a lot of people are stuck in some tough circumstances. So can you tell us what your circumstances were? And then we'll get into a little bit of how you got out of it and how you brought purpose to that. Yeah, of course. So um, a lot of people have this notion, and I think it's starting to get dispelled, but 
abusive people come from the blue collar class or uneducated, they're usually drunks, et cetera. My parents didn't fit that profile. In fact, my father is a PhD, he's a professor, he taught at good universities like University of Michigan, University of Illinois, et cetera, when he was teaching in the US, very smart guy. Um, charismatic. So he would be somebody that if I were to diagnose him, obviously I'm not qualified, I would call him, he's probably a malignant narcissist of the overtype. So he has like a, not just abusive, but a sadistic trait, which is very scary for a child. And my mother is um, what they probably would diagnose as a covert narcissist and, and an enabler. So when you grow up in an environment where both parents <laughs> are not quite there and you're the child stuck in the middle they basically use the children as pawns and they triangulate the children so they make the children's divide and fight against each other for their morsels of attention and it's easier to control so they use like all the narcissistic strategies you can conceive of to control and dominate and terrorize us wow so so how long did that go on? I mean, when you graduated from high school at 16, did that have anything with to do with you gra wanting to graduate high school so, so early? <laughs> yeah, it had a lot to do with it. I, I think if the, you see kids that, you know, maybe really like being with their parents, even after they graduate, they choose to live with their parents. It's far from that situation for me. Of course, you see a lot of kids that are dominated, controlled, scared by their parents, unable to leave. And certainly, you know, my siblings had to deal with that. Uh, it really depends on your coping style. I predominantly had the fighting coping style, which means that it doesn't matter what you do to me, I'd rather die um, and I will not beg. So that to some extent, I think, propelled me to get angry and get out as soon as I possibly can. Yeah. And, and you know what? I love that you brought up the fact that a lot of people think that the working class is where a lot of the abuse happens. Now, that was my situation. Um, definitely, uh, you know, dirt poor, no food in the refrigerator, uneducated. Um, and, and that's where the abuse came from in my family. And I think I think a lot of people, when they take a step back, they'll see like in your situation, your your father was very, very smart. A college professor, correct? Yeah. Yeah. He teaches at a university. It's one of the best universities in Taiwan. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think that blue collar misconception is, is something that when you see somebody coming from a good family with, with educated parents, you think that they have everything together. And that wasn't the case in your family. Yeah. I remember when I was in college, um, because I have this level of naiveness, which is actually a common symptom of kids who've been severely controlled by their parents. It seemed like I have this happy-go-lucky, not street smart. So my um, dorm mates were interpreting me as somebody who came from a very spoiled background. I was likely the youngest and my parents took care of me. No, it was entirely the opposite. I simply lacked the skills and the kind of social skills and even just survival skills that most people would know how they handle. So when I came to the U.S. Um, for Stanford at 20, it, it was a, a pretty big shocker. I had no control when I was living at home in terms of what I could or could not eat. My parents controlled all access to money 
including money that I made as a tutor for sweeping floors, for being a cashier. Everything I made, I have to hand it directly over to them and it had to be used in ways that they sanctioned. For example, uh, they considered a waste of money for me to get a haircut at a salon. So my mother would cut it. And of course she does a horrible job, but I have no say over that. It's just, they control you down to the very minute details. So of course, when I um, arrived at Stanford and I all of a sudden had some freedom, I got a teaching assistantship and some money on the side. I ended up eating a lot of cheesecakes and uh, gaining about 20 pounds in a quarter. <laughs> the freshman so, 20, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I gained that during the grad school years, potato chips. It was irresistible to me. So I had to learn a lot of things that, you know, I never, never had to learn going from a very strict situation to all of a sudden a lot of freedom. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are in that same situation where their parents are really running their children like a video game. You know, they're, 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 they're telling them every little thing that they can do. And I've seen this a lot when kids get out on their own, all of a sudden they just go crazy. And I mean, it sounds like your craziness was pretty mild with cheesecake, but I don't think that's always the case. I think there's a lot of children who have been under the thumbs of their parents who go off the deep end with drugs and alcohol. Go into a little bit about that. I mean, what was your mindset when you got out there and you realized you you made the choices i think for me i'm my openness to experience is very high yet at the same time i'm also a very logical person whether it's through genes or just for nature or nurture so i don't have a strong self-destructive tendency i tend to think rather carefully in terms of the long term I think that has helped me a lot. If I were, you know, what they call the marshmallow test, which is largely debunked, but I think I do have a certain level of willpower or ability to say, I will sacrifice short-term pleasure for longer-term pleasure. And that has really helped me a lot. My parents in no way prepared me to have adult relationships or to understand how to manage money because they were somewhat secretive. Well, they were extremely secretive. <laughs> about how much money they have, where they put it, et cetera. We were not taught anything, but that was something that, you know, I studied in school. I understand compound interest rate. As soon as I had some money to invest, I immediately started investing. So those were things that I definitely helped me to achieve a level of freedom that I consider very necessary. Um, I observed how my mother was under the thumbs of my father. So he, brought home the money, she quit her job to be a stay-at-home mother. And eventually I think she just didn't feel comfortable. It's out of fear, not that she could not, she definitely could have, but due to covert narcissism, there's a level of every job is beneath me. Um, I should have been, you know, way better job. So why would I do this secretarial job? So she never chose to go back to work. And because of that, he had total financial control over her as well. And I saw that and I didn't know how to get to financial freedom. But for me, that was always a goal. So as you said here as an adult and, and you've been very successful, you've done a lot of, of incredible things. You've worked for some of the biggest companies in the world. How much of that drive comes from your upbringing? And is there anything in there that you're trying to prove 
maybe back to your parents or, or, or anybody like that, that, hey, I can do this and I can do it on my own. I know with me, I have a lot of that in me because I was looked down upon because of who I was and what I represented. And I wanted to prove to the world and to all those naysayers that I could do it. Is there any of that going on in your life now? I think for me, the what was driving me back then was less about, you know, a dying sense of ambition. It was a lot of fear that the, the catastrophic thinking has always been, um, if I don't graduate from Stanford, if I don't get a green card, I can always, you know, end up back in Taiwan and, you know, in this dark place again, or if I don't own a house, you know, if I don't have a house, they can kick me out and I'm back to Taiwan again. And all these threads is catastrophic thinking. So I've been running for a good part of my adult life to try to build as many um, kind of gaps between me and Taiwan as possible. Of course, it's there's no amount of running that I will feel safe. The Pacific Ocean alone is not enough. So what else is going to be enough, right? right. Of course, what's, um, what's addictive, though, is that all of these strategies worked a little bit. Like, I remember when I got the green card, I was good for about a month. I felt like now I'm safe. I've landed safe landing. And then it was like, no, not really. You know, what if I get laid off and I don't have money and all the bad stuff happens? I have to go back to Taiwan, live with my parents. Oh, no. Right. So then you keep running again and again and again um, until your body starts to break down and all that. So a lot of these things start to make me think. And of course, I got married and um, I married somebody due to, I think opposites attract. When you have this energy of, I can do it, I can save us both, which uh, was precipitated by the fact that my mother always told, told me and my siblings that it is our responsibility to save her. Like we were little toddlers. She would alter alternately tell us that, you know, we should commit uh, suicide together because if we don't, then your father will remarry somebody who will abuse you. So let's just go kill ourselves together. It was really quite disconcerting to say the yeah. least when you were, yeah. you know, five, six years old. You can't, you can't really understand what it means. Like, what does death mean? What does suicide mean? And yeah, there's a lot of craziness. So people tend to think that, you know, an overt narcissist is damaging, but they forget that covert narcissists can be very damaging as well. They yeah. just hurt you in different ways. So anyways, that, that created a mindset of, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to rescue people. And of course, I attracted somebody who is more than happy to take advantage of that. So these are hard lessons to learn. You, you know what, you hit on so many great things there. I, I have a talk and it's called, there's no sense in swatting at flies while you're standing in a pile of crap. And, uh, you, you know, and, and those piles of crap are, can be people. They can be places or they can be ideas or mindsets. And you really touched on all three of those, you know, piles of crap that you're, you, you know, and, and I liken the flies to all the issues that surround those people, those places or those mindsets and ideas. And you've touched on all of those. Um, is that what, where all the fear was coming from? That if you went back, it, you know, to Taiwan and you had to deal with all that stuff again, is that, is that where the fear, and is that fear still there? I think the fear for me is now gone. Because I realized, once I realized that there is no amount of running, then I realized that the fear itself is not real. Right. So the only thing I can do is actually to look at it. Fear has an interesting 
mechanism in such that the more you run away from it, the more you dance around it, the bigger it gets until it eats away your life. As in it gets bigger, you get smaller. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter what kind of fear it is. So the only way to shrink it is to actually face it and see how real it is. I, a lot of the coaching that I do to the women, um, with the women in, in my coaching group is to say, okay, the feeling when you feel so afraid, how old are you? And it's generally not an adult that's feeling that fear. It is the child. Yeah. So a lot of the work that we do is to heal the inner child and to go back in time and kind of really examine the feeling then versus what the resources you have now as an adult. How did you overcome that fear? Because I, I, I find the same thing is fear just keeps you tethered to exactly where you're at. And, and the more that you look at that fear, the more strength that you give that fear, uh, the harder it is to get away from where you want to go. So how did you deal with that? And, you know, tell our listeners uh, some advice on that. I love that. Yeah, of course. So there's something called prolonged exposure therapy. It's an evidence-based therapy, right? Just give you a super simple example. My father used to, as part of his torture techniques, he would randomly wake people up in the middle of the night for absolutely no reason. And it's, he would wake you up violently. So you just don't know what night, when, how he's going to wake you up. So as an adult, I actually developed a fear over the alarm clock. <laughs> it sounds completely ridiculous, right? It's an alarm clock that I bought, I said, that's helping me get up in time so I don't miss a meeting. So the tricky part is I'm both a- afraid of being woken up by the alarm because the alarm waking me up kind of symbolizes my father. Doesn't take a rocket science to see that. At the same time, I'm also afraid of not being woken up because then I'll miss the meeting, right? Right. And then that's also a bad consequence. So I'm in a rock and a hard place. And the alarm clock terrorized me for a good decade and a half. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that the way you kind of work with this is that, you know, in in terms of therapy is you would play the alarm during like normal business hours, just randomly set it off. You listen to it. Like, okay, I listen to it. I don't like that sound, but hey, nothing happened to me. Right. So that's, that's evidence-based. Like the evidence is the alarm can do nothing to me on a Saturday, no meetings. Let me set the alarm. I usually wake up at six. Let me set the alarm to 10. And then slowly pushing it, nine, eight, seven, on a weekend. Okay, now it woke me up. Still alive here. Right. Right. So this is called kind of this gradual um, exposure to prove that there is nothing that's actually going to happen to you. Because the fear is always in the thoughts. It's unproven. It's imaginary. So you're basically saying, I'm going to like peel back the curtain and expose the little guy in the Wizard of Oz as like pulling the cranks. Yeah, and and you know, fear, when when I look at fear, I, I look to see if I'm afraid of something that no one else is afraid of, that lets me know that it's only in my mind and that I can deal with it. So yeah, I, lo- I love how you put that and facing that fear, understanding that it's only in your mind and that you can overcome it. Um, one of the things I like to do towards the end of the show is I just like to read off quotes. I'm a quote guy. I love quotes. And I just want to get, yeah, I just want to get your take on them and you kind of give it your spin and what it means to you. So let's start off with the first quote. I am enough. 
for everything that I, for everything that I can't, there is something that I can. I am enough for everything that I can't, there is something I can. I think the, the concept of I am enough is a little bit like the, um, in, in Buddhism, there's uh, the concept of no self. So no self means I am not this, I am not that, I am none of these things are me, right? When you attach your identity to anything, then you're vulnerable to people's opinions. When you say that, oh yeah, you may, you know, you're very smart, then it adds to my opinion of myself as a smart person. And if you say you may, you're not that smart then it takes away. So then my happiness is dependent on other people's opinions. So that's where all these comparisons, social anxieties, the people pleasing behavior all come from. So if you can go beyond that to say, I'm just enough, like, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not a good father, I'm not a bad father, I'm not, you know, a good worker, a bad worker, an entrepreneur, a loser, whatever it is, you don't define yourself by that, then you're in a way immune to people's opinion. And then for everything that you can't do, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do. (laughs) I think a lot of times we, our mind is laser focused on our limitations versus all the things that we can't still do. Yeah, I think that too. I think uh, there's so many people out there that only look at the things that they're not great at instead of all the things that they're great at. I I think that also comes for people. Uh, You look at the four or five people that maybe don't see the world the way you do, and you ignore the thousands of people that that do see the world that, that the way that you see it. So yeah, I love that. That is true. Yeah. And I also think that when you're good at everything, life is really boring. Like, for example, I'm a horrible dancer, right? But I go every weekend because I figure if I'm a terrible dancer, that means that I could probably my neurons need a most boost there. So if I dance, I get a lot more benefit compared to a good dancer whose, you know, brain is already very wired there. I love that. (laughs) That's, that's a great mindset. Okay. Let's try this one. There is always a way when you are committed. There is always a way when you're committed. I guess it depends on the bar. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I could all, it can be a a, a ballet dancer, but I can always be better. Right. I can always be better. Having a reasonable expectation will make life a lot easier. Yeah. That's one thing that that we kind of teach is I, I truly believe if you have enough time, enough focus and enough energy, you can do anything, but we are human. So sometimes there's just <laughs> never going to be enough time to do something. So uh, yeah, I like that. How about this one? If you are going to try, try to make it to the top. It never hurts to try to shoot for the top. Like um, when I'm on the Peloton, I always try to get to the top. It's fun. It's for me, it's a game. I think generally having an attitude of I'm going to try my best, but then laugh at it. Just having a more relaxed attitude is good because what is top? Different people have different opinions of what top is. Some people, I remember when I used to be in a bike racing team, it doesn't matter if you're like a surgeon or entrepreneur or the world's richest person. If you're slow, you're not respected in that group. And same for my dance group. If you're a good dancer, you're popular in that group. So um, I realized that's when the sense of self or what's valued, what's not valued is not stable. So if we peg our self-esteem or who we believe we are 
based on that, then we're never going to feel safe. Yeah. You, you know, and I think so many people get caught in that trap. I mean, I, the only person that I try to compete against is, is the person staring back at me in the mirror. I try to become the best version of myself uh, because there's always somebody out there who's smarter. You know, there's always somebody out there that, that makes more money, that, that has better relationships, what have you. And if you get into the compare game, uh, I, I believe that's a, that's a disaster waiting to happen because there's always somebody out there that has it better than you. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to compete against myself and become a better version of myself than I was yesterday. So yeah, I, I also that. find it interesting, like you said, when, when people are comparing, they're comparing a point. Like, for example, um, a guy might be like, oh, I wish I'm rich like Bomber. I'm like, do you want to be fit like Bomber as well? <laughs> like you have to compare a to like you have to compare the whole thing you can't just say i just want the best feature of this person the best feature of that person i want that person's height this person's strength that person's iq that doesn't make sense that person does not exist yet you're comparing your worst qualities against somebody else's best qualities love that yeah and and and, and again uh you know disaster waiting to happen when you start to do that yeah. what, what goals do you have in your life right now i love goals uh, i'm a goal guy <laughs> Uh, I got smarter, you know, our app helps people achieve their goals. What goals do you have in your life right now? So my goal is um, I want to build a business that's life is love school like. So I want to heal as many survivors as possible so that ultimately as few kids suffer the way that I did. I find that absolutely unfathomable, unconscionable when we can do something. If both healing the survivor alleviates pain now, but it alleviates all future pain. I just really want to end the cycle. And the bigger dream is, you know, if I could make the businesses profitable through reach. So my goal is reach as many people as possible. And then I can roll that profit one day into orphanages, both for animals and for children literally have it run side to side so that the kids can take care of the animals and vice versa. There's a lot of healing there. And I wish that more kids had a chance in life. A lot of kids never had a chance in life. And I want them to have that. I want them to have a safe environment to grow up. I love that. Now, now you have a day job, right? Uh, at Google. How, how different, uh, and I've done the same thing, you know, I, I've worked for big corporations and now I've come off on my pet project here to, you know, change the world one person and one inspiring goal at a time. How different is it when you're working on your passion project? You know, of course, you're going to do a great job at Google and you do everything that you need to do there. But how, tell, tell everybody how different it is once you find your, your passion and your purpose in this life. I think everything that I do kind of lines up to that, regardless of where I'm working, you can always find people, the imposter syndrome, where does it come from? Just because somebody may be working for a larger corporation or well-educated or you know, making decent money doesn't mean that they don't suffer. It's just different ways of coping, right? And maybe on the surface, it looks different on the inside. It doesn't look that different. So a lot of times the coaching that I do is not dissimilar to what I do in Life is Love School. Nice. Well, you may, this has been incredible. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you. 
Yeah, they can find me on lifeislovschool.com. I recommend that they join our uh, Facebook group. There's daily discussions going on. I usually ask questions and people start thinking. There's so much power when people are able to help each other out because we see that our suffering is actually not unique. We're not uniquely broken. We are not alone. Everybody else is also feeling this way. And then different people have different ideas of how to get better. So there's a ton of power in the group. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you again uh, for being on. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners. We really appreciate your support. We would also like to thank our sponsors. I Got Smarter Goals Elevato, available at the App Store, and the book, The Unlucky Sperm Club. You are not a victim of your circumstances, but a product of your choices. Uh, thanks again. Uh, we really appreciate it. Great words of wisdom today. And until next time, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.